Unbound. Unbound. This is Unbound, the podcast that tries to nudge the boundaries of philosophy. And this is Kay. And Giuseppe. And with you and a bunch of other friends at the new school, we are going to push the boundaries of philosophy. Are you ready? Let's begin our journey to become Unbound. Hi, I'm Giuseppe, and this is Unbound, the podcast that tries to nudge the boundaries of philosophy. And today we're going to have a chat with Miranda Young, a PhD candidate in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. But before hearing more about herself from Miranda, I'd like to introduce our other host for today, Zach Wang. Hi, Zach. How are you doing? Hi, I'm Zach, and thanks, Giuseppe, for inviting me today. I'm also a master student in philosophy at the NSSR. And I'm so excited to talk to our colleague and friend, Miranda Young, today. Uh, Miranda, why don't you start telling us about something about yourself? How did you get into philosophy? And what are some thinkers that have influenced you? Yeah, hi. Yeah, good to be here, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, it's funny. I have a couple, couple different ways of telling this story. So in high school, my dad really wanted me to take a community college class. And I... This is so funny because I was thinking the other day about like how, like you know, in philosophy, there's this sort of like age old conversation of determinism versus free will. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a very much a story for determinism or free will. I don't know. It depends on how you interpret it. Anyway, sorry. So I, I kind of had some interest in history and literature. And I remember my I had kind of come across Nietzsche as a, like, you know, a teenager does. And, <laughs> Classic. and so I thought it might be cool to take a philosophy course. I really didn't know anything about it. Um, and I just thought that, you know, it sounded like a sort of cool questioning, like edgy practice. And so I went to the community college and I uh, tried to sit in on the 101 class. And the class was full and there were about four or five other students trying to get in. So the teacher says, I'm going to give you guys a number. Actually, yeah, there might've been like 10 students. I'm going to give you guys a number and I'm going to pull two numbers out of a hat and whoever gets chosen out of the hat randomly gets to say, stay in the class. And lo and behold, uh, my number gets drawn. So by complete chance, I end up in this philosophy class that like totally changes the course of my entire life. Amazing. Um, I know, I just like, honestly, I know it's kind of a, a silly story, but I really, like it really internalized me this summer how much like what my life would have been if I hadn't had it pulled. Anyways, so that class was awesome. You know, it was this uh, woman who kind of just gave us a survey of the literature. We started with the cave, you know, we went through Aristotle, the existentialist, Berkeley, Descartes, um, and we had to write, I think, a sort of two-page paper uh, every week on what we wrote and uh, sorry, what we read, and that was like really difficult for me. I had never written that much. I'd never been forced to think about things in that way. Um, but it was it was it was significant, like you know. And it's it's kind of yeah. funny, but like you know, someone like Descartes just sort of sitting by a fire and questioning everything like was just so huge for me uh, right yeah yeah there was something about it that just felt really natural it felt sort of like i was falling into a method i just really felt at home in like a like a like almost like a sort of the rhythmic practice of 
back and forth and the sort of critique and responding to critique just really opened up like a sort of space of freedom for me that I hadn't really had yet. So that's cool. Right. Where, where was this? What what city? Because you were not in New York, right, at first? No, yeah. I grew up in L.A., so it was actually in Pasadena. The Pasadena City College is actually one of the, like, it's a really strong community college. Um, shout out to them. <laughs> Great philosophy professor, too. Um, yeah. And so how, how did you then, you know, so that was that where you did your undergrad or? No, or just... no. So that was actually just a class I took in high school, but it, you know, I, I loved the class so much and I would sort of sit and chat with the professor the way that some of the students did that I actually looked um, into schools that had strong undergrad programs, um, sorry, strong philosophy programs in their undergrad. And so I ended up going to school in Connecticut, actually, this really small liberal arts school called Connecticut College. And the philosophy department there is was very small, but like incredibly caring and like very engaged. Um, I remember the first class I sort of sat in on there was a moral psychology class and that sort sort of stuff really blows your mind. But yeah, and um, it was there that I actually really got into uh, feminist philosophy. Um, I had a mentor there who was trained um, in the analytic tradition, but he was working on kind of theories of rationality in relation to social justice. And mm -hmm. uh, he was just like incredibly attentive to like my development as a philosopher. And there was another mentor I had who was a older woman who had trained with Karsten Harries in the continental tradition at Yale. She, um, she wrote this dissertation on Novalis and was like really interested in de Beauvoir and the existentialists. So between these two uh, figures, I really was able to sort of become developed in sort of these different areas of philosophy, different methodologies. Um, but what, was, what they both shared was sort of this like deep care for bringing philosophy to the world or having philosophy sort of speak to imminent issues. Um, and, you know, I think without them, I like really, really would be lost. And so that was that those, those were sort of significant figures for me. But I think Zach had asked and sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> Zach had asked a little bit about some sort of uh figures that were really influential to my work. So right. to start, I I had come across the work of actually a philosopher called Susan Bryson, um, who was a philosopher who used her own narrative of sexual violence to make claims about the phenomenon of sexual violence and further the imperatives that needed to be taken up from these, uh, from her experience. And this just struck me as like an insane piece of philosophy. Like it just really sort of blew everything open for me because mm -hmm. it was sort of this like narrative account, but also philosophical argumentation, critiques of philosophy, but also showing the ways in which it had the power to like really open something up or open up lines of critique. and. I think that that was a sort of really significant moment for me. Um, and in that, in, in that she was showing the limitations of philosophy while also showing its potential in relation to her own narration. Um, so she was someone who I kind of followed her work and have continued to follow her work throughout the years. Um, 
later on in my undergrad, I managed to take a existentialist class where, you know, I came across de Beauvoir and, and in particular ethics of ambiguity. Um, so de Beauvoir writes that piece as a kind of response to Sartre's like metaphysics of freedom in being uh, a nothingness. And, you know, it's just this like wonderful piece about the ways in which you have to create ethical structures through the sort of realities of our lives. Like, so what she sort of critiques is that Sartre, Sartre's notion of radical freedom is like way too much. I think many of us have that critique, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. really true to the experience of being a person. And so right. what she sort of articulates is like the facticity of the individual, the like lived experience, the material realities they like that, that they inhabit are not counterposed to their freedom, but rather make up the ambiguity of existence. Like, so, so this freedom and this facticity, like is at certain points, like, uh, indistinguishable. And we have to sort of create ethical structures and care out of this. So I'd say between de Beauvoir and Susan Bryson, those were kind of two figures that just like really got me started on sort of this general path of feminist philosophy and theories oriented towards social justice. Um, Right. Where, does does Susan Bryson still teach? Yeah, so Susan Bryson's at Dartmouth. Actually, she um, we've we've had a couple meetings. She's amazing and also just like a really great person to talk to. Uh, but sometimes she's at Princeton. I know. Um, so she goes in between these two spaces. Mm -hmm. So did you did you come across her work um, before coming to the new school, or was it something that you uh, encountered here at the new school? Like, because because mm -hmm. I'm interested to know how you. Um, from California decided like did someone point you to the new school or you know did you know about the new school how, how did that happen how did that move? oh yeah sure well so no I had I had known I, I had read Susan Bryson's stuff and was working on this idea of narrative of trauma its relationship to sort of a social critique for and and, and sort of the notion of the subject and the self and a narrative self I was working on that through Most of undergrad, I wrote an honors thesis on it. Um, but uh, around my second year, I actually got involved with this one fellowship, thanks very much to this history professor I had, that sort of tried to help students of color get into academia. So as I was a student of color, um, as I was like a, a half Chinese woman in philosophy, um, this program aimed at sort of helping me financially and sort of materially sort of like apply for grad schools. Um, right. It's called the Mellon Mays Fellowship for anyone who wants to know, super great. Check out to see if there's one at your undergrad. It's a great initiative, but yeah. So, um, and I found the new school uh, through a sort of series of conversations with my professors and sort of online sort of research And I guess ultimately I was really drawn to this idea of a kind of like radical politics that, mm -hmm. and the commitment to radical politics through philosophy. I think that as a sort of value was really significant to me just because I kind of, given that I had this interest, right, in sort of experience um, and feminist, uh, the notion of experience and for survivors, feminist philosophy, critical race theory, I sort of knew ahead of time, especially from mentors, that these were topics that were not considered to have like a very 
safe home in philosophy, right? Like these right, are topics yeah. that many philosophers consider to be um, periphery or they consider to be, them to be like merely psychology or sociology. I knew that this, this, this was something that I would sort of come up against. And so I, I, I was looking into departments, you know, like Penn State and uh, CUNY, Vanderbilt, Emory, those that sort of had showed a concerted effort to bring the, the lived experience and politics sort of to the fore. Right. And that's how I found the new school. Um, yeah. Um, Miranda, so I was reading your honor thesis in your undergrad, mm-hmm. and one of central uh, theme is this De Beauvoir's ambiguity. And you graduated college in 2016, around the time where Trump got elected, and it was also the Me Too era. I'm wondering, like, mm-hmm. if that have somehow informed, <laughs> you know, your choice of writing this thesis. And yeah, oh my god, I mean, talk about a sort of like wave of pessimism, my fucking god. <laughs> <laughs> well, because no, I mean, Zach, that's a really interesting question. Um, how sort of my thinking has shifted since I've sort of like left a sort of like small liberal arts college and sort of the like sort of these feminist these small feminist groups that I would get involved with survivor speak out groups that I would be involved with that were like doing amazing work but it was very confined and then kind of moving into the New York space in the fall of 2016 um yeah no I mean and and also in relation to me too so that I mean that's a big question maybe I can try to answer it and let me know if I if I don't fully get it but um I in undergrad I had a commitment to the idea that survivors experience in their own words and with respect to their agency was something significantly powerful and in like indispensable for social critique um the need for a sort of like significant shift in consciousness would um be best articulated through the survivor's experience themselves, right? Um, And then, you know, we kind of enter into the political terrain of a kind of post-Trump America. And I think there were certain moments where I think my optimism in something like a sort of democratic, pluralistic engagement of voices had wavered. So not that I went back at all on my views that this was significant, but rather the systemic structures sorry, that would make it so that these voices would never be heard or these, or there would never be structural and institutional change to like these sort of like individual and democratic calls for shifts in, in consciousness, right? So, and you know, when you have something like a rapist being voted into, um, into sort of the United States, like, uh, administration, it, it really shakes sort of a a sense of that other folks see this as important too, right? Like, um, and then, so like, you know, it is kind of, it's very interesting actually that then the Me Too movement sort of takes off pretty close to after, I think, after sort of Trump was elected and and the and his administration was sort of beginning to implement more sinister policies, policies that of course had been in place like 
in other ways by moderate Democrats, I think is important to say. Um, but uh, one way to think about this is like the Me Too movement, which I think is both successful, powerful, wonderful, but also flawed and filled with sort of like uh, problematic power dynamics and the prioritization of one vo some voices over others. Um, but one way to sort of think about it is as like this response to the sort of violence of like something like a sort of fall 2016, right? Like there's, we've seen that, that, that at least that a, a large portion of Americans just don't care, don't think about these issues at all as pertinent. And so the Me Too movement, you can almost imagine is sort of the like resistance, the outburst um, against it. Now, I mean, you know, genealogically speaking, I think it's really important to note that stuff like the Me Too was going on way before the cases of Harvey Weinstein, right? Like that the work yeah. of uh, the work of uh, black women and women of color specifically have been like integral foundations to the ability for this work to sort of take off. And I, I think that it's really worth it to think systemically about this, right? Like what are the conditions of possibility so that certain speeches take hold. So, so that's another way of also kind of rounding out the transition of my thoughts, right? Is before I had had this kind of like wide-eyed view about the possibility of speech and narrative and personal experience, when the post-2016 and post-Me Too showed me a lot about the systemic conditions that produce narratives, that allow certain narratives the sort of power to take hold, and then thusly, the systemic conditions that receive those narratives and the type of reception that they are taken up as. Um, so one really bad offshoot that I write about a bit sometimes is the idea that like Me Too is merely the elucidation of individual moral wrongdoings, right? Like I think this is something that is sort yeah. of taken up um, in popular feminist culture um, that we're merely talking about the bad boss and it, the, the case of sexual violence is, is isolated to him when actually what we should be taking these narrative of, narratives of is, is elucidations of social conditions that give rise to events like this. And then thusly, you have systemic critique if you view narratives like through this lens. Um, In one of the previous episodes of the podcast, we had Gina Walker and she was talking about the Me Too movement and I think she was saying something along these lines because she made a remark about the very name of the movement, Me Too, and how, you know, in a way it's individual. It sounds like a conversation between two women, right? One woman saying to another, Me Too, it happened to Me Too, right? But that could seem to, you know, bring this all back to what you were saying, this kind of individualization of, of the event rather than mm -hmm. of a of a systemic problem. And in connection to that, I wanted to ask you about, so, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, as things stands today, the main avenue for justice for a sexual assault survivor is the criminal justice system, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem with the criminal justice system is that it is itself a place where a lot of sexual mm -hmm. violence is produced. I, I saw this stat about the US, just the US, that said that 
about 80,000 uh, cases of sexual assault uh, happen on average in a, in a year. And so, you know, it, 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 I feel like, of course, criminal justice is makes sense as a form of reparation for the victim, right? Someone has committed a, a crime, has committed a wrong, and they go to trial, they get punished. But I feel like if we're talking about justice, especially for uh, sexual assault survivors, justice would require something more, in the sense that society hasn't done justice to a sexual assault survivor until the very system of oppression of women that leads to sexual assault has been dismantled. And this is why, for example, I think the, um, the Spanish movement, since you know we were talking about the, the very name Me Too, I prefer, for example, the Spanish uh, feminist slogan, slogan, Ni Una Menos, because you know, that points to the fact that there is no justice for a survivor if another woman will be abused tomorrow, right? It's almost an all or nothing situation. And it's, you know, it's like, um, I feel it's like, you know, trying to, to fight an infection uh, with paracetamol. So the infection is not going to go away by fighting the fever with paracetamol. Of course, fighting the fever is important, but to prevent the fever from coming back, you need antibiotics rather than, than paracetamol, right? And this is a, a very roundabout way to say, is the work that you're trying to do the antibiotics rather than the paracetamol. <laughs> well, I definitely don't. Uh, just a, I definitely don't see myself as doing anything as significant as antibiotics do. Like, given the power of medicine. But no, I mean, hopefully, <laughs> I don't want to like take that on. I, I but I, I think you're. Have you really touched on something that's actually really significant for me? Um, you're absolutely right. Where. An individualist account of harm in between a survivor and the perpetrator of violence, like opens up the possibility of solutions to something like our current legal system, right? Like you're brought to a court of law and then the proper sentencing ideally, right? Which is like, we right. certainly know that uh, perpetrators of sexual violence like are very often like not convicted, which is a part of another systemic issue, but uh, the, it, it opens up this idea that justice is a matter of adjudication of that justice by the legal system. And I think that this is a really like worrisome view. I really do. And I think a lot of feminists who are sort of developing an intersectional critique would articulate a similar view. Um, so I'm working on some critiques and especially, you know, given a kind of under, like what we're calling a systemic understanding of the production of sexual violence, I'm working on some line of critiques against what's called carceral feminism. So that's a term from Elizabeth Bernstein, um, sociologist who works a bit on the role the criminal justice system plays in actually the production of sexual violence and how uh, there's a strand of feminism that's dependent on the carceral system, which actually undermines critiques of patriarchy. So let me back up a little bit, right? Like, for most theorists, um, feminist theorists, they see sexual violence as the type of, um, as a type of 
policing system or a weapon of domination from patriarchal structures. Right. I think this is like a lot of really significant understandings coming to us from the radical feminist tradition. Um, so that means that in order, when we are trying to achieve justice for survivors, we're actively fighting patriarchy. Now, due to sort of the important work being done by the black feminist theorists, Patricia Hill Collins, the Combahee uh, River Collective, we know that intersect, like systems of domination intersect. And in fact, they are dependent on one another for their own survival. So things like the intersecting dynamics of patriarchy and white supremacy are incredibly important when taking both uh, systems of domination seriously. So this is what I want to say, right, is we have, thanks very much to the movement for Black lives, for the work of Black feminists, and the uh, some of the some of the work being done on um, the genesis of the carceral system with, uh, uh, with the slave era, we have this understanding that the carceral system is fucking racist. It's not only racist, but it's a tool for the maintenance of white supremacy. So if we have this feminist tradition that articulates justice for survivors as the criminalization of sexual violence, but we also have a movement against the prison system, even so far as the prison as prison abolition, we might see where there is a contradiction. And I think that this contradiction is really scary for a lot of people to talk about because like the impulse to support survivors is a good one. You know, like it's it's something that survivors and feminists have fought very much for. But I think it's now something, especially given the momentum that uh, the critiques of the police and the carceral state have gained thanks very much to the work of Michelle Alexander um, and uh, the leaders of Black Lives Matter. We we're, this this contradiction is coming to a head, and we have to think imaginatively about ways out, and we have to think of the ways in which actually white supremacy is a production produces sexual violence as much as patriarchy. Um, and you know, there's also feminists who sort of try to talk about the ways in which like. Uh, the the, the sort of racist sexual violence is, all, is simultaneously a production of patriarchy. But my point is merely that we understand these two systems as deeply interconnected. And as you very rightly pointed out, our current <laughs> criminal justice system <laughs> does anything but prevent sexual violence. It produces it. Right. Um, so I think that this is something that I've, I've, I've thought really hard about and I want to contribute to the literature, which is like, if we're taking intersectional feminist stances seriously, which we should, it's a sort of great mo uh, great direction that the feminist movement is going to, we have to think really hard about some of our most concerning issues. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so you mentioned intersectionality, and a great intersectional thinker is Gloria Thaldua. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was reading her you know, her masterpiece, Borderlands, La Frontera, yesterday. And there was something that really caught my attention and somewhat surprised me and I wanted to ask you about. So she, I will read the, the few lines from, from the book. I think it's the seventh and the last essay in the book. And she says, she writes, the answer to the problem between the white race and the colored, between males and females, lies in healing the split that originates in the very foundation of our lives, our culture, our languages, our thoughts. 
A massive uprooting of dualistic thinking in the individual and collective consciousness is the beginning of a long struggle, but one that could, in our best hopes, bring us to the end of rape, of violence, of war. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, regardless of how hard a process it may be or how long it may take, maybe, you know, it is possible to think or at least theorize the end of something like rape. What do you think? Do you think mm. that it's impossible or is it productive to, to think in these terms? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, like, that's a wonderful... Uh, Anzaldúa is so amazing. It's a wonderful quote. I Thanks for, like, reading it. And I think this is, like, a wonderful question. And I, I can imagine Anzaldúa's sort of contribution to this is sort of significant in, in saying something like, like another world is possible, right? There's something really powerful, I, b- I believe, about this sort of idea of another world is possible. It was something we were chanting right. a lot over the summer when we were talking about rethinking the police and rethinking the distribution of funds in support of the police and defunding the police. Um, and I think that this line really strikes me to be like in line with some of this political claim, like another world is possible. Um, And I, what I know about Anzaldúa is she sort of is demanding like both like ontological, like sort of very deep rethinkings of sort of ontological relations, like subject-object, but also she demands for the kind of like, as you had pointed out, intersectional feminist critique, like the taking seriously the intersections of things like gender and class um, and race and ableism and coloniality. Like, so... But here's one thought I have, which I don't think is contradictory against Anzaldúa, but more just like unpacking what she might mean, right? With her kind of systemic critique. Right. One worry I have sometimes is I think, and this comes out of the individualizing character we were critiquing before. My worry is that folks, individuals and communities, and especially given the way that our carceral system works, often distance themselves from the concept of sexual violence. Like, that can never be me. That can never be my father. That can never be my brother. And that can never be my friend. And, like, if we're actually taking seriously, like, a sort of structuralist position that a subject, like, a subject-oriented and patriarchal and racist structures will take on patriarchal and racist ideologies. And it ain't even, like, commit acts of sexual violence like and this is something that like you know if you just sort of follow a sort of post-structuralist and like um social epistemologist line of thought something that i think is really an important insight because then it shows us all of our collective participation in something like a act of sexual violence it shows us all that we have all have individual responsibility and that means that we have to be incredibly critical of our own engagements so what i mean to say is like i i i take it that one important feature of the systemic critique of sexual violence is to show that like this is not some this is not just evil monsters in the dark like these are people in your community who have committed acts of wrong to other people in your community and you have responsibility to engage and you have responsibility to like think really hard especially like like if you occupy positions of privilege about the ways in which you participated it or might have even acted it out 
and we need to think of like moralisms that go beyond like um go beyond a kind of hyper individualism or like a hyper moralization that can help us come up with these community accountabilities um but this is you know this is a difficult question right because i think we also on the other hand live in a society that really tries to ignore these violences silence over them like because that people are unwilling to admit their participation in them so i guess what i would what i'm trying to say is like envisioning the end of rape as though you don't have a role in ending rape culture is what i want to war is what i'm worried about and i think what we can take from anzal dua is like the significance of subjects oriented in systemic conditions um it's in, in patriarchal systemic conditions like each have a role that can actually maybe get us to an alternative world alternative sexual practices alternative sexual norms um yeah right that makes, that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um Miranda, so in your essay decolonial histories and political imagination you have also warned us against uh of this theological thinking of you know in this end of rape of like as a dialectic of history mm-hmm. and i wonder if you can say more about that and mm-hmm. how your method of narrative different than that teleological thinking of history mm-hmm. um it's a really good question um there's a lot of kind of like meta discussions in the sort of like significance of personal experience and narrative around like the concept of teleology and like whether it's something more harmful than helpful um Actually that paper Zach is is sort of a good example of of what I'm thinking of where so in that paper I actually turned to a critique that Serene Cotter at CUNY she wrote an amazing text decolonial colonializing universalism a transnational feminist ethic and so her work is sort of committed to trying to find ways that we can think of solidarity among feminists across cultural difference that also is interested in a decolonization Um so there's a meta conversation there where a lot of feminisms that universalize themselves tend to be imperialist and I'm really sympathetic to this critique so Serene's trying to like provide something significant and so what Serene does though is to show how like this notion of enlightenment telos right this idea that like we will reach some sort of end of history where we will have arrived at a utopia or arrived at something better than history of progress is taken up by a lot of imperialist tendencies in interventionist feminist traditions. So she's writing this critique of Tilos just to kind of reference what Zach was talking about. And yet I also engage with the way out of a kind of universalistic Tilos history is still a narrative. Um it's a narrative that offers sort of a, a way forward towards resistance towards pushing back against current structures of power with an o- with an offer of an alternative world. So this is actually I think a kind of really sort of difficult conversation but the question of utopia is like really hotly debated and as you guys know we've heard our professors debate it. Question of utopia is really hotly debated. I tend to take a sort of position where I think things like imagination and po- like sort of the poetics of an imagination of imagining something in alternative are necessary conditions for resistance um for creating spaces of resistance 
or demanding spaces of resistance. Now, it's a mistake to imagine that you're there already, I guess is what I would say. And that's one way to think of the sexual violence, right? It's a mistake to imagine, like, I have learned, I have <laughs> become woke, I have, like, learned all about the patriarchy and I'm incapable or outside of sexual violence culture. Right. Rather, you know, like, for survivors who kind of come forward with their stories in really brutal conditions, like, that where their stories are not welcome, where their stories are like silenced. Part of the commitment, I think, in sort of raising a, a narrative as critique is a sort of demand for something different that is based on the imaginative possibility of something different. Um, and I think that that's not teleological, but it's just, um, a it's, it can be something that's like a de decolonial imagination or um, an anti-racist imagination. Um, yeah, I don't, sorry. Right, so I wanted to ask you about, so we talked about your work um, in theoretical terms, let's say, about, you know, uh, the meaning of what you do and what, what you're trying to say, what you're trying to think about. But one thing that I wanted to ask you was, what is it like to, you know, work on on such a sensitive topic because you know first of all even just doing greetings for this type of research must be intense at least sometimes and your experience is definitely very different from someone who is doing their phd say on aristotle but also in terms of the work that you produce you know i imagine you sometimes find yourself having to use extra care in the things you say and and the words you use right so what's what is that like yeah thanks for this question pep um <laughs> it's really you know I, i'm gonna sorry i'm gonna sound very like cheesy i think at this part and don't worry <laughs> i have struggled a lot personally with trying to get make like trying to assure myself and the world that this work is significant and important, right? Like we, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of holding at one hand, this like tradition of philosophy that's concerned with like ideas that are free from the material lived experience spaces that have been, you know, like full of like, realistically speaking, white men, people who don't look like me. I'm holding that at one hand. And then like, I'm also kind of, holding out another, like, the sort of political community and, like, a sort of outside of academia community that also doesn't see this as significant, right? Like, this is, like, and, and like, I don't mean to be dramatic, but it, it, it is sort of difficult sometimes for me to assure myself that this is something worth doing. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's also hard, like, you know, it's like, I, I'm working on narratives of survivors. I read a lot of narratives of survivors, but... There's two things that kind of really help me, which is one, like having a community of like, have like really having a community that encourages the work, that shares with me their own narratives and like in a way that is like very brave and like helps me think, th think through these thoughts. Like it's people who push me, people who agree with me, like there's community members that I have many of them women, many of them people of color, and many of them, like, not that I think allow me to 
make my arguments and engage with me in ways that are not are supportive in ways that are both like supportive in that they're cheering the work on, but they're giving me the critiques that I need. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm willing to admit like, like I'm like, I, I need to be pushed because my views are limited to my particular experience. And that, so that's the beauty of experience, right? Is that, course, that yeah. sort of diversity of it, you're allowed to sort of like your views become better. Um, and two, you know, it's just these like communities of care. Like, so even beyond academic communities that just like push me and support the work and remind, we remind each other that our work is important, but there's also just like extended communities of care. Like um, at the new school, you know, I two figures that really come to mind are my friend Miriam, who you guys have already mentioned, who has already actually been on this podcast, great episode. Yeah. And my friend Michael at CUNY and, you know, it's like, you just have people that just check in with you and tell you when to take a break, tell you when to work on something else, tell you when to play, like, you know, like put the books down, go outside, ride your bike or something. Like, you know, I think it's just things like that, like are really like, like um, really important for any academic and an academic working on Aristotle and an academic working on survivor narrative, right? Like, and I, I, I myself like try really hard to engage with these communities and create them. Um, and I think that that's really helpful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it seems like the project itself is like, it's deeply personal and, and somewhere you wrote that this is a narrative, a narration of a rupture, you know, it's different than a narration of utopia. And one of the figures you raise is Franz Fanon. And you said Fanon is both pulling in a reader and then alienating them as a way of illustrating a better form of recognition. Mm. And I'm just wondering, how does this illustrate a better form of recognition? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so the paper you're referring to is sort of me sort of sitting with um, Fanon's chapter in Black Skin, White Masks, um, the lived experience of the black man. and. You know, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on on some of these ideas, um, particularly from this racial embodied conference in Clemson. I think it was the spring of 20, 2018. Um, so the basic thesis I have is that Fanon has a critique of recognition theory um, at the end of Black Skin and White Mass, partially because like racialized bodies like are not afforded a sort of moment of pure recognition under white supremacy. Um, so theories that sort of depend on recognition theory as sort of an ethical basis, like will, um, that don't take seriously a notion of white supremacy, like will not properly, properly accommodate people of color or race bodies or, uh, black bodies. And Fanon's narrative is really important as sort of significant in that it, it's got these passages that just like draw you in that kind of like get you in a kind of like embodied phenomenology that like, like he just narrates like nausea, anxiety. Like he takes you on the train with him when the child like points at him. And then he kind of like throws you out of it by then like talking about Hegel a lot or talking about Freud and like kind of giving dense psychological psychoanalysis. And I, I see this as sort of rhetorically significant because it sort of teaches the reader um, 
that in part, like, you can have a sort of sense of recognition, but you also, like, need to understand a kind of, like, a, a way in which, like, your recognition infringes on the narrator. And I, and, and so I guess what I was, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, this, this strength comes from a sort of, like, critique of, like, empathy um, that some, that some Black feminists have really helped me articulate, which is, like, narratives that just sort of merely depend on the empathetic engagement, like, can be problematic because a lot of the times, like, say, like, so Sadia Hartman's work in Scenes of Subjection, she talks about how, like, white empathy became the basis of a lot of emancipation, and that was really concerning because, like, then a sort of, like, white supremacy is sort of, like, locked into the logic of emancipation, right? If only, like, if you only get ethical recognition when there's a white empathetic audience, that's really problematic. And I think that can apply to the Me Too movement, right? It's, like, I think that can apply to, like, current structures of survivor narrative. If only white celebrities, rich women, are the ones that are recognized as victims, like, you have your, your movement has failed in a certain way. Right? Like, yeah. If you can't acknowledge the ways in which, like, the structures uh, that you've been situated in blind you from certain narratives that are significant, then, like, your political project has failed. Um, sorry, I don't know if that went all over the place. I, I hope that helped, that answered in a way, Zach. Maybe, like, yeah. a way to tie it back. Um, yeah, another quote I really like from that paper is that you detailed that this recognition is a recognition of a negative space slash mm -hmm. difference. Like, is, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's uh, a central meth methodology in your approach to narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, so, the the Linda Alcoff just wrote this book um, called uh, "Rape and Resistance," um, which is really significant for a lot of my thoughts. Um, and she she actually writes it as a kind of like she had kind of mentioned at a certain point that it's a sort of like Foucauldian consideration of sexual violence that she views to be very important. But but more importantly, like one of one of the main uptakes of that of her of her work is to articulate the importance of particularity with survivor narratives, right? Like her critique is of sort of like universal considerations of what a survivor should do. Uh, avenues of justice a survivor should pursue, what a survivor should be doing to heal, and what, as we had sort of talked about, a typical perpetrator might look like. And she's her significance is that when we pay attention to something like a survivor's narrative, a particular experience, we get a much richer moral understanding of of the cultural significance of sexual violence. Kind of circling back, so this notion of particularity is really important. So this is actually like this, this may be actually helpful in sort of tying together some thoughts. The Me Too movement, while significant in sort of organizing a collective engagement, Me Too, Me Too, it could potentially dissolve some of these important differences, differences that black women may have to deal with in like in, re in reference to white women or fat bodies to uh, thin bodies, like, or um, like, uh, the particularities of, uh, of of a queer identity in relation to these like survivor experience. Um, these are uh, really important distinctions that.
that will help us get to better political solutions than sort of wholesale ones, that will help us attend to the experiences on the periphery, um, that will help us get to more significant politics than like a sort of like state-run politics. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, um, and Miranda and uh, one of the authors that we both really like is Gia Tolentino, mm-hmm. and in her essay on the internet, she wrote that the internet brings the I into everything, that it makes solidarity a matter of identity. And I'm wondering if you're like critiquing that idea of this self-branding, uh, yeah. you know, in this narr- narration. Like, one would even say that nowadays in the age of internet that there are already enough na- narratives and it's all surrounding me, me, me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, how do you, you know, get over, overcome this, um, this yeah. self-monetization, this branding of personal identities yeah. under capitalism? This is actually, like, a huge, a sort of huge question that's been in the back of my mind, actually. And, I, you know, like, we love that essay um, where Gia Tolentino talks about the self as the last sort of terrain of commodification, right? Like... Capitalism has commodified everything. The last, of course, space of commodification has to be the self. And we, when we see this, especially like sort of given our, our visual culture, right? Like we see the kind of like obsession with personal narration, the obsession with like selling yourself in such a way to an audience. Like, um, and we wonder, it's worth being cynical about that practice, I think. Like, because that practice doesn't have any broader community engagement. It doesn't situate itself in sociality. It rather like claims the individual in ways that like try to like make the individual like outside of its social, right? I think that's what I think is like a sort of really concerning dynamic of it. However, one thing that we cannot deny, and this is sort of a sort of pause moment that I'm interested in, is personal narratives have a huge role in sort of having one articulate their particular experience and position and mobilizing political consciousness, right? Like stories really, really have power. Um, And what we do about the fact that there's commodification is is, is an open question. My thought is something like, if we think of a narrative as not merely someone's story, but rather the elucidation of an entire social fabric, and it's interconnected with other social fabric, we think of a narrative that's not outside of critique, right? Like, given that we're all, this is like great insights from Joan Scott's, like, evidence as experience, where she critiques a sort of understanding of experience as, like, outside of ideology, like, right? And I think... That's something that like we need to take really seriously here is that experiences and stories illustrate a social fabric and they illustrate limitation, but they also, in, in being both those things, they can offer us the resource for political resistance. Like they can be the grounds for political resistance against those dynamics that render us like impotent, like, like sinister capitalism, like 
and, and sort of structures of late capitalism that just lead us into sort of these terrible commodification spirals. Um, and so my, my thought is this, Zach, right? Like we don't dispense of the notion of narrative. We don't dispense of the, the notion of the lived experience because we know it's powerful and it always has been powerful for political movements. But we need to think of it as beyond its individualist and like capitalist logic. And we have to think of it as the grounds for resistance against those very frameworks. So Miranda, you, you were talking about, you know, narrations and you've been talking about narrations of sexual assault by victims. So first person narrations, right? Mm -hmm. And I was curious about whether you had thoughts at all about narrations of sexual assault by mm -hmm. uh, a third party. So for instance, descriptions mm -hmm. of uh, rape in art that, mm -hmm. you know, I think they're probably more frequent in written form rather than in visual media, such as movie or theater, you know, for reasons that are fairly obvious, I think. And even when, when there is depictions of sexual assault in movies, for example, it's often hinted at, or you understand that that's what happened, right? But you don't have, you don't have a scene where mm -hmm. you see, you know, sexual assault taking place. So I was thinking, I wanted to ask you whether you had opinions on whether there should be limits to depictions of uh, rape or whether, you know, sh you know, should sexual assault be censored in art? Uh, can one just allude to it? Is it, you know, is it more appropriate to do so? Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe your opinion differs depending on what media we're talking about, but I was just curious your thoughts about this. Yeah, great. So this is stuff, you know, I hope to kind of work through theoretically, um, two thoughts. One, there's this great book by Adriana Cavarero, um, relating narratives, um, where she takes up, so traditionally narrative identity is, is actually a very, like, uh, it's a very strong idea in philosophy. It's come, it comes, you know, from Locke and there are two figures in particular who are really significant, um, which are, uh, um, uh, Mac, uh, Alistair McIntyre and Paul Rapport. And so Adriana Cavarero um, takes up sort of traditional treatments of narrative, which actually, to Zach's point earlier, are traditionally like identity as like sort of teleological. You know, we experience ourselves as storied. Um, we narrate our, our identities like through our stories. And she talks, she kind of pushes it, pushes that thesis a little bit to talk about actually both one, our own impulse to self-narrate and two, our, uh, our need to be narrated. So actually she's really interested in dissolving an autobiography and biography distinction. She thinks theoretically that there's the, the difference between these uh, sort of in the significance of, of identity is, is not so important, but rather to sort of just talk about the general ways that stories, both autobiographical and biographical are significant, right? So First, I kind of want to sort of nod to her work, but I think to your second point, or to more specifically your question about the idea of narrative beyond just autobiography, but also through other mediums, there's a lot, there's this one artist actually I was really interested in um, when I was an undergrad, uh, Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, she was a Baroque painter um, who was the daughter of a very famous painter. I'm blanking on his name. Um, but she painted 
some really significant paintings. One was shown to me by an old professor called Susanna and the Elders. And it's from the biblical story where Susanna is, um, Susanna is sort of approached and manipulated by like lascivious figures. And uh, another painting that she, that Gentileschi is really famous for is this painting called Judas slaying Holoferns. And it's two women pinning a man to a bed and sawing his head off. And Susanna and the Elders is this very, like, sort of, there's this painting of Susanna, like, pushing these men away, like, and she looks disgusted with them. Like, she doesn't look fearful at all. She looks, like, rageful. And so mm -hmm. the reason why these two paintings are significant was, Gen was Gentileschi was really, like, shifting this idea of, like, women's agency and, and, and sort of resistance against patriarchal, patriarchal dynamics. And significant to the paintings is also this idea that Gentileschi was a survivor. So there's actually some, there's evidence that she had sort of gone through a court case where she had been assaulted by her mentor. So one like early preliminary thesis I had about these paintings was that they were a kind of re-narration, right? They were her working through her emotions about particular dynamics. They were her like articulating a survivor identity. Um, and so absolutely paintings have these significance. Um, paintings, like films, like music, like anything that kind of tells a story, I guess, like is like we can move it beyond the medium of the written word or the spoken word. Um, yeah, hopefully that, that answered it. Yeah, and with that painting, I, I'm also a big fan of it. And if you compare that painting to Caravaggio's on the same subject, like, yeah. see, like her, yeah, there's a much more strength in her depiction of that beheading. And and yeah, and uh, it sounds like your philosophical project relies on a lot of materials that are outside of philosophy, mm. and especially in popular culture. And I'm just wondering if you wanna t uh, share some of the films or literatures that, that have also influenced you. Yeah, great. Uh, so, I mean, of course, like there's like, like the question of what is philosophy or not is like a po politically contentious one that I like try to engage with, but ultimately not. I, I kind of like, as you had pointed out, I'm sort of interested in whatever theoretical or narrative based like <laughs> source that can help me like think of a theory that can be more helpful for everyone. Right. Um, so I don't know if I can speak to so much to that, but I, I, I do work with a lot of narratives. I've worked with a lot of novels. I've worked with a lot of kind of like, I, I've read through court cases. Um, and I, uh, there's there's a there's a few that actually come to mind to me that were really significant. Well, one of course is Susan Bryson's text Aftermath. Um, really powerful text. Would recommend to anybody. Um, second is actually um, the Elena Ferrante uh, series, um, the uh, Neapolitan novels. Um, those books have just like you know there was one summer I just read them all. I, was just, I think that there was like a moment where they just totally took over like American like feminist understandings and what I think is really significant about Elena Ferrante is she shows the ways in which patriarchal dynamics um systems of patriarchy are woven into the mundanity of the background right so the center of the story is these two girls who like are living their lives together and like trying to make sense of an unhealthy relationship but the 
the text itself is supposed to like immerse you into like an understanding of systemic patriarchy without making that violence a spectacle. And I think that's really important to me actually is this sort of critique of the spectacle that I owe to like the black feminist tradition in, in, in many ways. Like the idea that violence is actually very, for, for, for those in minority positions, like violence is very mundane. Like it's, it's a part of the everyday. Um, and so when it becomes a spectacle, it's made it so that it seems as though it's out of ordinary or it's like a particular experience. And Elena Ferrante is really good at that kind of weaving. Um, another sort of really important survivor narrative that I think I've both had to put down and pick back up is Roxane Gay's Hunger, where she really like aids in sort of like talking about the intersections of her own like experience with sexual violence, her relationships with her body and her relationships with her race. It's a really rich text, I think. It's, it's also very intense. Um, and I also really like the way Roxane Gay is sort of like unapologetically spectacle. So kind of in the opposite of Elena Ferrante, she like sort of reorients the reader towards these jarring, like graphic, like triggering, like depictions of violence, which again, like, I think it's important. Like, but I think that that has its role in political and moral education, like different than Ferrante, but just as powerful. Um, and those are a few I can think of. Um, there's definitely more, but I think yeah. And with Ferrante, I think uh, of the series. I think another amazing thing is how she also make the influence of capitalism explicit in this. Yeah. You know, how like the money is not just patriarchal violence, but also money contaminate all the relationship. Yeah. Okay. So this is great actually too, because in Elena Ferrante's series, she actually talks about how one of the main characters goes to work in the factory and how like there's a sort of condition of sexual violence like that's like predicated on her like vulnerability both as a woman but as a worker right and this actually kind of leads me to something that else is sort of i take to be really significant um about survivor narratives is is, is there needs to be if you have a kind of survivor narrative as illustrating systemic patriarchy you need to understand the ways in which like survivor narratives can offer insights into racial politics, but also critiques of capitalism, right? And that's something that's really significant. About, I think Pep had mentioned earlier, the Niuna Menos movement um, is also a, a critique of class. Like it's a, it's a critique against gender violence while simultaneously being a critique of class. So I think at best as well, the Me Too movement by critiquing sort of this, this sinister boss figure was obviously a critique of both the individual person, critique of patriarchy, but also a critique of the workplace. And I think that this is another significant dynamic that like survivor narratives can show the ways in which capitalism, the workplace and class dynamics open up vulnerabilities. Um, and this is something that like, you know, like a sort of commodified feminism or commodified individualism of narratives like will fail at. Like we need to think of these narratives as sort of illustrating to us the conditions through which like the events like this can occur and the workplace uh, class dynamics and capitalism is like certainly the basis for many of these dominations. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and Ferrante herself also resists that commodification of herself. Like this is a, a pseudonym and she, we never knew who she really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting with Ferrante because you know, she, as, as Zach said, she uses a pseudonym and I guess she uses an Italian pseudonym. We don't know whether she's actually Italian, I guess. Uh, 
But before coming to the US, I'd never heard about Elena Ferrante. <laughs> I don't know whether it was me, <laughs> who, you know, maybe I wasn't, uh, you know, open to the word and I didn't realize that Elena Ferrante existed. But it, it's, it's very strange because as soon as I came to the US, everyone talking about Elena Ferrante, about how great she is, <laughs> never heard about her when I was in Italy or in the UK. So maybe it's an American phenomenon. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, It, it, it was it was really significant here and it's funny because like yeah I guess it is no matter what it's like contingent on the communities that you're oriented in but yeah, it also reminds me Pep that people like when you came here were like have you read Elena Ferrante like that like both in your Italian identity were like do you know Elena Ferrante <laughs> yeah they asked me a few times and every time I was like I have no idea it's, it's not like you know I'd heard of her and didn't read her I'd never even heard a name before yeah 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 well i've heard that there are conferences actually dedicated to like trying to figure out her identity which i think is like oh, wow. really interesting and confusing but i mean yeah, yeah. to zach's point like i think you're right she tries she it's it's significantly an individual's life story right like it's like there's no other way to see it it's like it's a life story a particular event a unique elucidation of like someone's experience and yet she's dissolved herself a little bit so that it becomes this like narrative that it's like yeah i really know what you're talking about i know oh i really understand like this this feeling or this experience like it becomes like a kind of a ground a, sort of a grounding for solidarity in its particularity so you know we talked about literature a bit and you you know throughout this conversation you hinted at the fact that sometimes you are worried that the work you do in philosophy mm -hmm. is not considered philosophy or is considered strange work that not many people approach. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting as I was reading your your stuff to, to see that you actually bring this attention to the literature, let's say, um, in, in all of the things that you do, it seems to me. I was reading your, your paper on anarchism and mm -hmm. there you you kind of talk about how some anarchist writers like Goldman or Kropotkin or Laboisi, how, how they use the concept of human nature rhetorically. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you whether in reading philosophy, uh, you, 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 you use this as a kind of strategy. So mm -hmm. to not only think about argument, but also to try and pick out what the author is trying to do rhetorically speaking. Yeah. Is, does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, this is so, that's a really, it's really helpful to talk to you guys because I feel like you say my thoughts back at me, but better. <laughs> um, and so, no, I mean, I totally, so for me, and, and this was something actually that certain professors at the new school have helped me sort of work through is like the disciplinary difference between something like a narrative and an argument, right? Like, and mm -hmm. we know the difference between those methodologically. Like we know what an argument looks like and we know what a narrative looks like. We know the structures that orient them. But for me, I find there to be like sort of significant insight in reading philosophy like a, like a novel. Like, I, I don't know, like, it, of course, like at certain points, like I have to pay attention to the structure of an argument so I can engage with the content of that argument. But with readers like per, per, Uh, Kropotkin with Emma Goldman with Fanon like um, with like another figure that I think I've thought about this a lot is Levinas like they are writing in such a way to bring you into 
a world or like bring you into an experience. And if you ignore that for the mere, just like for whatever you construe their argument to be, you miss out on a whole aspect of the argument itself. Right. Like, right. Um, and this is something that like novels teach us, right? Like novels aren't giving us an argument. Like novels are trying to immerse you in a standpoint, like, and whatever lessons you learn about that standpoint are kind of up to you. Like, right. There's a sort of aesthetic claim here and philosophy can offer that same perspective. Um, yeah, I, I really do think that's true. Um, Right. Miranda, if you were not a philosopher, what would you have been? <laughs> That's a good, fun question. Um, you know, I, I mean, this is something I still have to constantly, like, I always say with friends, like, you know, uh, the academic job market is like really sinister. <laughs> um, you know, uh, high academia, higher ed is headed towards an economic economic crisis. We both know this. This is like a sinister product of late capitalism, right? Like, and I think, so this isn't just like a hypothetical question, Zach. Right. You're, you're turning this into not, what would you have been? Yeah, no, it's not very like magical, but I think my point is that, uh, in a nice way, it's a question I still ask myself in terms of mere practical necessity. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I've loved the communities I have the political communities I've been involved with. I love the grassroots groups I've been involved with. Um, I love literature. I love teaching. And there's like tons of spaces, I think, like that kind of offer this opportunity, right? Like there's like really great activist communities. There's um, teaching high school. Um, there's working with survivors. There's um, working... Uh, working on like literature. I think these are all sort of aspects that I'm really open to. I think for me, it's like, because sort of my point is I don't really do philosophy because I believe I can answer the questions of the truth of the universe. Like, I think that that pursuit is flawed a bit, right? Like, I think there's something like kind of weird about that, like knowledge pursuit. I do philosophy because I'm interested in helping people in the world. Like I'm helping people non-human and non-human animals and, and, and the environment, like, you know, I, I want, I'm interested in it almost in this pragmatic way. Like, I think it's a tool through which we can like make sense of ourselves and others that can help us treat each other better. So yeah, makes sense. And I was actually reading, um, the description of the, you know, the profile of a university professor a few days ago, mm. you know, the ones that are on websites where they say, you know, personal interests, what they're working on. And this professor was saying something like, you know, commenting on what he had probably been asked to do, you know, by some administrator, like send us uh, a few lines on what you work on, basically. And and he was saying something like, you know, these sections on universities' website where philosophers talk about their interests are often taken to be um, something like, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you happen <laughs> to be in? What, what tickles your imagination or something? And he was saying, well, this should really be a question about what do you think as philosopher we should or even, you know, we must uh, reflect about, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of what you were saying, right? It's not about, you know, you know how what answers I can find 
in the wide sea of, of philosophy, but what, what shall we do? Because, you know, uh, we need to do our part as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I like that. I like that it's like, if philosophy is a practice of reflection, like, then asking what the interest is is sort of showing, like, what do you think needs reflection, right? Like, mm -hmm. And I, it's also like, it reminds me of something I'd wanted to say is like, I think like, and here's sort of like, I, I, all this time I've been kind of ragging on philosophy, but also been like, showing sort of my commitment to it as a method, right? Like it's been a space that's both limited, but also free for me. And I think what I wanted, so, so there's a, uh, so <laughs> Foucault in, 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 in his, in his article, like what is enlightenment talks a little bit about like enlightenment ethos, right? And his, his point is sort of like something like, you know, and we, if we find ourselves no matter what, like if it's sort of in the Western world, in academic philosophy in the Western world, children of the Enlightenment. This is not right. something we can stand outside of. Like, this isn't something... And, and as we all know, Foucault is very critical of Enlightenment teleology, right? But he's right. saying that then the pathos of... or the ethos of, 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 of Enlightenment... of the Enlightenment is critique. That no matter what, like, the engagement of critique is quintessentially philosophy, right? And for me, this is like then can be taken up in its particularity. Like, what do you think needs critiquing? What do you think needs reflecting? Like, and I think that is the sort of tools that philosophy has offered me is like a way in which I can like critique the world and then reflect on like alternative ones, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as is often the case, at least in my opinion, etymolo the etymology of words is really helpful. And if you think about, you know, interest, uh, the etymology, I might be incredibly wrong here, but <laughs> what I remember from Latin, you know, inter est means to be in the middle of. So, you know, your interest should be, you know, what you are in the middle of, what you're living. And I think, you know, the kind of work that you do in, in you know, viewed under this perspective is incredibly important, mm. not to mention brave and, and necessary. So um, it, it was great to talk about it. And I think, you know, we've talked for over an hour now. Mm. Um, and it was a great conversation. Thank you, Zach, for joining us. Thank you, Miranda, in particular, Thanks, for being guys. a great guest. And yeah, I don't have any more questions. I don't know about Zach, but this was great. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, thank you for, you know, you know, thank you to anyone who has been listening to this. This was Unbound. This was Miranda Young. And we hope to have you here soon again. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.